Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Philippa. And in this special series of the New Statesman podcast, we're looking at the politics of climate change and in the run up to COP26, ask whether enough is being done to make a difference. So today we're looking at the lesson the UK can learn from other countries when it comes to changing the way we use energy in our homes, in particular, the switch from gas to heat pumps to heat our homes. In 2019, the UK sold just 1.3 heat pumps to every thousand households. But at the other end of the scale, Norway sold 40 to every thousand and currently has 60% of homes warmed using heat pumps. So how can the UK catch up with that? We're delighted to be joined by Tony Tiller, the State Secretary at the Ministry of Petroleum and Energy in Norway, to tell us what he learned from that experience, because at the moment, the UK is second only to Hungary at the bottom of the table when it comes to heat pumps. So thanks so much for joining us, Tony. And first of all, could you tell us sort of how Norway became such a leader in this technology? And was it a bumpy road to get there? Thank you, Anish, for for having me. I think there are several reasons why we have uh, such a high penetration of of heat pumps in Norway. I think, first of all, listeners in the UK need to to know that the Norwegian energy sector, our power system, is uh, almost entirely based on renewable hydroelectric power. So Norwegians are used to having electricity as their source for heating, unlike in the UK, where I understand historically you've been more dependent on gas for heating. So it makes very much economic sense in your household then to install a heat pump because it saves you a lot of money because they're much more efficient than, say, a traditional flat panel electric oven that you might have seen in houses. I can use myself and my own household as an example. I live in a a detached house, quite new house, in fact. But after a couple of years, we decided that it made economic sense to invest in a heat pump, have it installed, and then it saves you money. And it's really comfortable as well because you get a steady temperature. If you like it, 20 degrees Celsius in your house, you can have it running at a very comfortable temperature around the clock. Norway was obviously to a certain extent rather more advanced than the UK is in terms of electrification. There's quite a lot of pushback in the UK in terms of suggesting that big detached houses or the fact that the UK's housing stock is quite old make it more difficult to install heat pumps. And perhaps you could just talk us through a little bit more, explain the state of the housing in Norway and any particular challenges that you came up against. We do have a high proportion of small detached houses in Norway out of roughly two and a half million households, in fact, 1.3 million live in small houses. So percentage-wise, that's more than 50%, I guess. And half of those, again, have heat pumps. We see that almost 8 in 10 households own their own house or apartment. I think that's also 
probably uh, a, a great incentive. If you own your own house, it makes sense. It is a big upfront investment. A good heat pump probably will cost you around 2,000 pounds or so, at least, uh, I think, here in Norway, uh, maybe even more to have it installed. I can imagine that if you're a tenant or uh, flip it around, if you're the ha- if you're the landlord, maybe it doesn't make sense for you uh, economically because the incentives are in the wrong place. So we are lucky then in the sense that we have this housing structure or this ownership structure uh, in place. That housing ownership structure doesn't sound so far away from what we have in the UK, yet the installation of heat pumps has become or is becoming a bit of a political issue couched in the whole aim to get to net zero and what the cost could potentially be for consumers. So there's always this figure £10,000 to install an air source pump and more for the ground source kit, which appears in many newspapers as a way of sort of (laughs) instilling fear in people about the costs of what it's going to take to to reach net zero. I wonder if Norway had any of those political issues and how it overcame them. No, I don't think it's ever been a a very political issue. And I think that's coming back to what I said before, that listeners need to understand that we, I mean, Norway is a a mountainous, wet coastal country. And anyone who's taken the coastal route maybe or visited are aware that we have a lot of rain and we have a lot of hydropower. So for historical reasons, we have had abundant energy and abundant electricity and probably, or I know, at lower prices than you do in the UK. Just as Add on a bit of an anecdote. We are having a huge discussion here now because we just opened a new interconnector between Norway and the UK, which most likely will see electricity flow from Norway to the UK. And people here are concerned, are we now going to see UK prices for electricity in Norway? Because that sounds scary because uh, (laughs) prices are higher. But I would assume then that a high price of electricity, if you're going to use electricity as a direct source for heating, and you need to get there, I understand, if you are to phase out gas and reach your climate targets, then heat pumps sure makes sense. And it would be, I suppose, I heard 10,000 pounds. That sounded like a lot of money to me. But um, we actually haven't had in Norway any large-scale subsidy program or cash-in-hand program to to buy heat pumps. Because coming back again to, to, to ownership structure, people living in detached houses, it's made economical sense for people actually to invest in a heat pump on their own. So there hasn't been a huge political issue or any subsidy element or so. I'm sorry, I can't give UK politicians a a, a sort of like a recipe here because this has happened more or less uh, organically and and people acting on on very selfish economic uh, incentives, I think. Yeah, I think that's very interesting what you said there, because the figures are considerably higher um, in the UK. And there clearly is this pushback from people. And I think a genuine concern as well as to how they can actually afford to insulate their home to make it more energy efficient and to install a, a heat pump. I also wanted to ask you, we've talked quite a lot there about privately owned housing, but have you done any work on, on social housing or, or how you encourage landlords to, to see an incentive in installing heat pumps as well? Again, it's I think social housing, community housing is, is some somewhat uh, a smaller part of the whole market in Norway than than my understanding is uh, in the UK. There are a lot of co-ops and these larger larger buildings with lots of apartments are are co-owned. And I don't think that there's, they are probably the ones that are lagging behind in terms of the heat pumps. Uh, I mean, if you look at where the heat pumps are installed, it's predominantly in detached houses, predominantly in perhaps chained housing, you can picture the small house kind of stuff. And the larger housing systems, they probably still depend a lot on electricity. And historically, they have also depended on fossil fuel boilers. But in fact, that's one area where we have made political decisions. And back in 2015, 
we banned the installation of new fossil heating. And since 2020, last year, in fact, it's been against the law to use fossil oil to heat your building. So you have to go for bio oil or replace your fossil boiler with an electric boiler. And that we have subsidized. And I think that's a really good point you're making there. There's a lot of uh, discussion in Europe at the moment in terms of do we actually need a date? So do we need to say by 2025, by 2030, that we actually need to, to phase out gas boilers. Uh, so there's a real incentive there for the market and to bring prices down. And this is one area where the UK government has suggested it will go for it, but then has, has stepped back a little bit. And is that something that you feel we need is a really key end date? Now we're into the really big discussion. And our what phrase should I use? It's not, uh, is it a paradox? Is it a dilemma? We are blessed with a lot of hydropower. And as you said in your introduction, Anush, we are quite a big exporter of oil and gas as well, as you may know. And these days with gas prices at the level we're now seeing, which are almost unprecedented, we are exporting all the gas that we can. And I believe we provide about 25% of the gas that we use in the UK. I know, Philippa, you were in Brussels. I was in Brussels before the weekend together with the minister. We had discussions with the EU. I heard the EU president van der Leyen praising Norway for trying to crank up gas production. This whole discussion, and we're talking about heat pumps today, but it's, that's just that that's one element in this this really huge uh, transition that we need to go through that's very difficult. And the Norwegian government, our main approach to this is we're committed to our climate targets. We're doing a lot to fulfill our national targets. And that it's a demand side thing in terms of the gas. So if you can do away with your gas and the demand will no longer be there, then we, no one will buy our gas. It's really <laughs> quite that simple and quite that difficult. And I heard Mr. Johnson talking about renewables and the problem with renewables is that the wind isn't always blowing. And then that's perhaps the biggest challenge to the UK energy sector, as I understand it. In terms of the UK energy sector, there's been a lot of investment in wind and renewables, which is clearly great. But then, as you say, it's more the demand side, which now needs to change, which is obviously where the, the heat pumps and the electrification comes in so that we're actually changing what people are demanding, they're not demanding gas, they're demanding electricity, which can then come from those sources and also help balance the system when, as you say, the, there is less wind blowing. And obviously interconnectors from countries like Norway as well will help balance the system and, and make sure that when there's, there's less wind in the UK, there is electricity that can be brought in from elsewhere. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. on something in your last answer, Tony, about, about Boris Johnson. I just wondered what you think about the UK's place in Europe in terms of the, the wider transition that, that you mentioned. Boris Johnson was recently on the world stage saying it's easy being green. The Conservative Party in government at the moment prides itself on, on being one that's committed to a more sustainable future. How are they seen in the wider European sphere? I think the UK is an incredibly important energy partner for Norway. We are neighbors separated by a, a small bit of ocean, in fact. And as I mentioned before, we now have a first electric interconnector, or maybe it's a second. And we have these gas pipes that connect our country. So we are very in, much integrated. We had uh, your business secretary, energy sector uh, secretary, Mr. Quarteng here earlier this year, emphasizing uh, 
the need for uh, more cooperation. And just a month or so ago, we signed a bilateral energy treaty to, or not a treaty is probably not the right word, but a cooperation to set up a framework after Brexit. We really regard the UK as a, an important partner. And the North Sea, I think we need to reimagine the North Sea as a basin for energy. And you have, uh, the UK have really been taking the lead on, on wind, on wind power, on offshore wind. There are Norwegian companies such as Equinor, I know that I invested heavily in, in wind in the UK. And this is a little bit controversial in Norwegian politics. I mentioned before the difference in electricity prices and so on. But there is no doubt the way that I see it anyway, that there are benefits to both uh, countries here if we can be connected. I mean, the cooperation between hydropower, where you can store electricity as water in your reservoirs, combined with wind power has, has a lot of potential. But each country also have to look after their, their own interests. So this is, this is sometimes politically sensitive. But I believe in the long run that, that the countries around the North Sea will become, become closer and closer integrated in terms of energy. I think so. And Norway obviously had a, an election recently where climate was one of the the subjects, which was a big talking point, and also the the role of oil and gas going forward in, in Norway's uh, economy. With the new government coming in soon, you won't be part of that. But, but what do you see as the key steps now, both in terms of decarbonizing, continuing to decarbonize Norway's economy, and also, as you say, how it works in that wider sphere of European relations and working with the UK and other countries? You're right that climate was high on the agenda for voters this year, as we see across Western Europe, I think. It's a very high priority and people are concerned about the future and uh, the need to, to do more. I think it's also fair to say that there is a rather big consensus in the middle of Norwegian politics. We will now most likely have or we will have a Labour-led government. We've had a Conservative-led government up until now. But we do not really differ so much on, on these core issues of, of energy policy. I think the... As I mentioned before, on oil and gas, we will continue to be an exporter where there is demand. We will continue to place high HSE standards. We, we have a national carbon tax. We have the EU ETS, so we're really pricing carbon. We want to go into CCUS. We want to go into hydrogen. We want to go into offshore wind. All of this, I think, is most likely going to be continued under a new government. But the one thing that I see as if there's any gray skies on the horizon, it is a bit of a discussion here in Norway now on on how beneficial or not is this integration with other countries. And I mentioned that the, the UK cable has, has caused a lot of, of discussion here. And there are political parties who are, who are voicing uh, uh, concern and saying, you know, we should keep the electricity here at home. We need it for our own industry. We should be exporting it. We risk importing UK prices. That's bad for consumers, bad for industries. So this is a bit of a battle between the people who believe that integrating building is a good thing and those who more regard it as a possible threat to, to our economy. So as you can understand, I'm in the first category, but uh, we'll see how this develops. And you mentioned that you, the, the, the Conservatives and the Labour parties in, in Norway are not that different in terms of, of climate policies. How important do you think it is to have cross-political or cross-party support for climate policies going forward? It's, it's hard to exaggerate, I think, because I, I think we all know that the energy transition is going to demand a lot of us. And I mean, even just introducing a carbon tax, like we did that more than 20 years ago. And you have duties on petrol and, and stuff in the UK as well. And a lot of this is really tough political decisions and people, not all are going to like it. How do we make it socially just? I think it's incredibly important that you try to 
cross the aisle a little bit and agree on some principles because if we if climate all climate policy devolves into sort of just like party politics it's it probably doesn't bode well for kind of broad consensus you need to get people on board on this. But I mean, yeah, it, it's going to be really tough, I think. What lessons would you have then in terms of cross-party cooperation? Because we've just had our two main party leaders making digs at each other at their at their annual conferences. Do you have any lessons in, in, in cooperation? I don't know. I mean, we take digs at each other here as well. <laughs> That's politics. But and it's also very difficult to, to compare. We're a smaller country with a smaller population. We we, we are blessed with a very solid economy. It's probably easier for politicians here when you have perhaps more more room in your budget to do these things. But I just, I, I need to be diplomatic here. And I certainly hope that no matter what government you have in the UK and in Norway, I think both our countries probably benefit from close cooperation also on energy. I just want to, I was just going to bring it back a little bit to our starting point of heat pumps. Um, the UK government's working on its uh, heat and building strategy at the moment. Obviously, it's, it's the government, the UK's decision. But are there certain advice that you would give in terms of that strategy or, or certain ways you think are key steps for all countries perhaps now to move forward in terms of decarbonising heat, which is a really big issue given the amount of emissions that come from the building stock in Europe? Yeah, it's a big uh, question, Philippa. And yeah, it really isn't my place to to give advice to the UK government, but I certainly see that you have a lot of fossil fuel in your heating sector. And it it's pretty obvious then that you probably need to do away with some of that or a lot of that in order to reach your targets. And we have had a success story with heat pumps in, in this country. And I think one way or the another, it has to make economic sense also for the consumer to, to make an investment. And and how you make that happen is it's up to the UK government to find out. But it's a technology that has, has worked well for us. It's proven, it's tested, it's it's been it's been help, very helpful. I think, in fact, that we have we consume eight terawatts of electricity to produce eighteen terawatts. So it's incredibly efficient once you get it in place. So I can understand that this is something that you are really looking into, and then we'll see what they come up with. Thank you so much, Tony. It was great having you on and thanks for giving us all of your advice and, and telling us about your experience. Thank you for having me. Great. And thank you to our co-host, Philippa Nuttall. It's been an interesting series. What more can we expect from our environment coverage in The New Statesman? So in terms of the upcoming coverage of environmental and climate issues on The New Statesman, we'll obviously be focusing on COP26, the climate conference which is being held in Glasgow, and looking at from a wider perspective in terms of what needs to happen in terms of financing climate action and what needs to happen politically now to make sure that we really step up to reduce emissions in line with the Paris Climate Agreement. Brilliant. Thanks, Philippa. That sounds great. And you can find that all online and in the magazine. You've been listening to a special episode of the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleague, Philippa Nuttall, Environment and Sustainability Editor at the New Statesman. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. And our producer is Adrian Bradley. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.